the first most basic thing to realize about climate change is its incredible unfairness. Those who contributed the least to it suffer first and hardest from it. Welcome to Opinion Has It. I'm Elmira Bayrosley. From year to year, there doesn't seem to be much of a difference in the weather. Yet the world is getting warmer. U.S. scientists have officially declared 2016 the hottest year on record. NASA said today that 2017 was the second hottest year on record since... Temperatures last year were more than 1.4 degrees above the 20th century average. Since 1880, the average global surface temperature has increased about 1 degree Celsius or 2 degrees Fahrenheit. Right now, the Earth's temperature will rise by 3.2 degrees by the end of the century, and that's a disaster that would leave some parts of the planet unlivable. The consequences are already becoming apparent. We begin tonight with the state of emergency in California as historic heat fuels dangerous wildfires. Observations from 11 satellite missions, 11 different missions monitoring the Greenland and Antarctica ice sheets have revealed that those regions are losing ice six times faster than they were in the 1990s. As global temperatures continue to rise, experts say there's growing evidence that humans will face catastrophic heat waves and that parts of our planet will become uninhabitable. The increasingly apparent effects of climate change have reinvigorated the environmental movement that started in the 1970s. Today, young people are leading the way. People are suffering. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. In August 2018, a then 15-year-old Greta Thunberg staged her first climate strike in front of the Swedish parliament. Just over a year later, millions of young people across 150 countries joined her for a worldwide climate strike. The activists' demands are straightforward but potent. Eliminate greenhouse gas emissions, shift to renewable energy, and ensure a sustainable future. Will our leaders listen? We call Bill McKibben to discuss. Hello. Hi, Bill. This is Elmira. Hello there. How are you? I'm wonderful. How are you doing? I'm good. Bill is a longtime climate activist, a regular contributor to The New Yorker, and the co-founder of 350.org. I've got my cell phone here ready to record as well. He joins us from his home in Vermont. Okay, so with that, maybe we can get started. All right, I'm ready to go. Great. Bill, I want to start by looking at the history of the environmental movement. This past April, the world celebrated its 50th Earth Day. What were environmental activists fighting for back in 1970, and how have their goals changed? The first Earth Day and early environmentalism was largely a response to problems that were incredibly visible. The air was brown and you could chew it. Uh, the rivers and streams were, you know, yellow and orange and you could light them on fire. We just had had massive oil spill in Santa Barbara off the California coast and on and on and on. So it wasn't completely surprising uh, that people were ready to rally. It may have been the largest single day of political activity in the country's history. That was really important. Not only was it important to get them out in the streets, they, they won. I mean, you know, America soon passed a Clean Air Act and a Clean Water Act and all the other things that made the air far more breathable, 
the water far more swimmable and drinkable, uh, their initial goals have to a very large degree been met and, and all of us are the great beneficiary. And now we've moved on to an even deeper, more difficult set of environmental problems uh, that you can't see quite as plainly. The first Earth Day was a huge success. A unique day in American history is ending, a day set aside for a nationwide outpouring of mankind seeking its own survival. 20 million Americans, or about 10% of the entire U.S. population at the time, took to the streets to demand greater environmental protections. Recognizing the movement's power, the Nixon administration created the Environmental Protection Agency and enacted the laws Bill mentions, the Clean Air and Water Acts, as well as the Endangered Species Act. Then, in 1972, the United Nations convened its first global environmental conference. Stockholm, Sweden, June 12, 1972. Mrs. Indira Gandhi, Prime Minister of India, arrived today to address the first United Nations Conference on the Human Environment. It is clear that the environmental crisis which is confronting the world will profoundly alter the future destiny of our planet. And Bill, what about the challenges the movement faces today? You noted that the massive demonstrations on the first Earth Day did lead to some significant victories. But today's protests, which have spread much further, have really yet to deliver in terms of reducing emissions. Why is that? The, the first thing to realize here is that the targets are, are a lot more difficult. And the reason for that has a lot to do with just sort of science. And, and it's pretty easy to understand. I mean, take a, as an example, one of the pollutants that people were most concerned about at the first Earth Day, carbon monoxide, carbon with one oxygen atom. It comes out of a tailpipe. Uh, if your engine isn't working well, uh, it you know, kills you. Uh, if you breathe it, uh, it turns the air a different color on and on and on. And you can take care of it pretty easily. Stick a catalytic converter on the back of the car and that small amount of carbon monoxide that was in the exhaust stream just disappears. Now we're dealing with a different kind of pollutant, in this case, carbon dioxide, carbon with two oxygen atoms. And instead of being a trace gas that you can eliminate with a filter on the exhaust pipe, it's mostly what happens when you burn something is you emit vast quantities of CO2 and there's no filter that can catch it. You have to either stop driving a car and take a bus or a bike instead, or you have to drive an electric car that you can run off renewable energy. And so it's no wonder that this is a far more difficult terrain. The fossil fuel industries life is on the line, and they have fought with extraordinary amounts of money to keep change from happening. Still, over the last 50 years, there have been many milestones in the climate movement. From NASA scientist Jim Hansen's testimony before Congress in 1988. On an unusually hot June day in 1988, NASA climate scientist James Hansen told Congress the Earth was warming and humans, not natural cycles, were responsible. To Al Gore's release of the documentary film An Inconvenient Truth in 2006. If you look at the 10 hottest years ever measured 
They've all occurred in the last 14 years, and the hottest of all was 2005. But it is only in the last few years that public opinion has really shifted in favor of climate action. The science hasn't changed. So why did it take so long to get here? We asked Bill. Well, we know the answer to that question now, and we know it from really from great investigative reporting. You know, I wrote the first book about climate change and came out in 1989, a book called The End of Nature. It turns out that while I was doing that work in the 1980s, uh, the fossil fuel companies were doing all sorts of work on their own and coming to understand exactly how dangerous global warming was. Uh, and the record is very, very clear. Companies like Exxon put good scientists on this and they gave highly accurate forecasts of what was coming and they were believed. Exxon started building all its drilling rigs to compensate for the rise in sea level they knew was on the way. But what nobody did was tell the rest of us. Uh, instead, companies like Exxon and basically all their peers invested billions of dollars in building a massive disinformation campaign that kept us locked for 30 years in a completely phony debate about whether or not climate change was real. A debate both sides knew the answer to at the beginning, it's just one of them was willing to lie in order to protect their business model. And that lie may turn out to be the most consequential lie in human history because it cost us 30 years. 30 years we could have been at work on this problem. Now, finally, thanks to enormous efforts by activists to stand up to the fossil fuel industry in a thousand ways, divestment campaigns, stopping pipelines, going after their financing, all these things have weakened the position of the oil companies enough that they can no longer completely block rational action on climate change. And their ability to dominate public sentiment has evaporated. Uh, people look out the door and see, you know, forest fire after forest fire, heat wave after heat wave. You know, in the end, who are you going to believe? Exxon advertisement or your own lying eyes? Earth Day was first conceived as a response to a catastrophic oil leak, the one Bill mentioned in Santa Barbara, California in 1969. Yet huge volumes of oil are still spilling into our waterways regularly, including as recently as this summer. The mayor of the world's northernmost city has been charged with criminal negligence over a massive oil spill in Siberia last month. A Japanese oil tanker that has spilled more than 1,000 tons of oil since running aground off the coast of Mauritius has broken in two. The Japanese-owned bulk carrier Wakashio ran aground late last month and began leaking its 4,000 tons of fuel into the Indian Ocean. This highlights a point that many activists, including Greta Thunberg, often emphasize. Even when leaders voice support for the cause, it rarely leads to adequate action. One crucial reason for this is the fossil fuel industry's vast influence and wealth. Well, speaking of Exxon and the fossil fuel industry, in a column for The New Yorker last year, you suggested that a powerful way to push back on companies like Exxon is take away their credit card, divest from fossil fuels, especially in banking, asset management, and insurance, and that would dramatically alter the landscape for the industry. What is being done on this front, and what progress has been made? 
Well, this is really interesting. So you know probably that we've mounted this huge divestment campaign to get institutions to sell their shares in the fossil fuel industry. And over the last decade, that's become by far the biggest thing of its kind in history. I think as of today, we're at 14 trillion dollars in universities and pension funds and churches and things that have sold their fossil fuel stock. You know, within the last few months, both the Pope and the Queen have joined in this effort. And that's had a real effect. It's weakened the fossil fuel industry in big ways, which they've admitted, uh, you know, Shell in its uh, annual report last year said it had become a material risk to its business. Thank heaven, since Shell's business is a material risk to the planet. But the next step of this that's now unfolding is, as you say, an attack on the people who supply the money to the fossil fuel industry, their cash pipeline that keeps them going. So a whole broad coalition of groups have formed this effort called StopTheMoneyPipeline.com, and it's been in operation about eight months and had all kinds of successes. Chase Bank got rid of its lead director because of his ties to the oil industry. BlackRock, biggest asset manager on earth, announced that they were going to be making climate change a central part of every investment decision they made, on and on and on. And I think the reason that this is happening is A, because it's clear that the finances of the fossil fuel industry are not good. They're being challenged every day harder by sun and wind, which are now the cheapest ways to make the same product, energy, that oil and gas companies produce, and just just incredible challenge from activists. If you're a bank, yeah, you can make some money lending to oil companies, but it's not the core of your business. It's maybe five, six percent of your business. And if it becomes more trouble than it's worth, then you might back away. Yet the divestment movement can take us only so far. Since the signing of the Paris Climate Agreement in 2016, many of the world's biggest banks have only increased their financing of fossil fuel exploration and development. Now governments must step up to the challenge, and quickly. Addressing the climate crisis will require root and branch transformation of production, transportation, and much else. Well, Democratic Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Ed Markey introduced their Green New Deal at a press conference today. The legislation calls for a 10-year plan to reach 100% clean, renewable, and zero-emission energy. There is no way to achieve that without sustained political leadership. Today is the day that we truly embark on a comprehensive agenda of economic, social, and racial justice in the United States of America. We have the technology to do it. We have the moral obligation. We have the economic imperative. We just need the political will to get this done. But politics moves slowly, and politicians are often as captive to vested interests as they are to election cycles. The United States will withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord Just five years after the Paris Climate Agreement promised a new era of progress, political leaders, beginning with U.S. President Donald Trump, are rolling back environmental protections and rejecting international cooperation. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change warned in 2018 that we have just 10 years, 20 at most, 
to avert climate catastrophe. Now to a dire warning about climate change. According to a new report, experts say that we have until 2030 to avoid catastrophe. It also says if unprecedented changes are not made and made soon, there will be irreversible damage to the planet. The UN's latest report, put together by over 90 authors and editors from over 40 countries, is probably the starkest, most dire warning yet about the severity of climate change and the cost of inaction. We have a global emergency, and you, you use a phrase like that, and some people uh, immediately say, okay, calm down, you know, that can't be that bad, but it is. And what the scientists... Bill, I want to ask about the fossil fuel industry's enormous influence over politicians, especially here in the United States. This stems from campaign donations, lobbying efforts, and, and more. How can we change that? That's the key question. And then if you look at the United States, for instance, I mean, the fossil fuel industry basically purchased one of our two political parties about 15 years ago and kind of terrified the other one. And it's why there's never been any real you know, climate action out of our Congress 30 years on. The only ways to stand up to it are to make it, you know, to try and make it more painful for politicians to take money from the fossil fuel industry. So we campaign a lot about that and continue to demonstrate to financially weaken this industry so it can't have the same kind of hold over politicians. Look, none of these guys are in bed with the oil industry because they love being in bed with them. Uh, they're in love with them because the oil industry is powerful and can deliver goodies to them. Uh, if we make the fossil fuel industry less powerful and more politically toxic, then that will shift. If you entrust me with the presidency, I will draw on the best of us, not the worst. I'll be an ally of the light, not the darkness. It's time for us, for we the people, to come together. At no time before have voters faced a clearer choice between two parties, two visions, two philosophies, or two agendas. This election will decide whether we save the American dream. This November, the United States will have one of the most consequential elections, arguably, in modern history. If Joe Biden defeats Donald Trump, what should his first 100 days of climate policymaking look like? Well, I think he's actually got all kinds of good people there now beginning to work on this. What it should look like is something like parts of the Green New Deal. There's things he can do on day one without congressional uh, authorization, and he's already said he'll do some of them. For instance, permits for drilling and mining on public lands in the U.S. That's important. U.S. public lands are the fourth or fifth biggest source of carbon in the world, you know, and he can do that by himself. And then he'll need to work with Congress to do the long list of things that we should have been doing for the last three decades figure out how to do uh, massive retrofits of buildings, how to overhaul transportation systems, uh, how to work with farmers to reduce the carbon impact of agriculture, uh, on and on and on. 
and there's a pretty good programmatic list now emerging. Uh, the House Select Committee on Climate Change that was set up after the Sunrise Movement and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez camped out in Nancy Pelosi's office has just produced a really powerful like 500-page document that has an awful lot of those ideas right in there. And what about the rest of the world? The climate crisis is unfolding in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. Facing what is likely to be a severe economic recession, the U.S., along with the rest of the world, must now grapple with how to recover. China and many European countries are taking advantage of large-scale stimulus spending in response to the ongoing COVID-19 crisis. And what they're doing is investing in clean energy technologies. And in fact, they're attaching climate-related conditions to industry bailouts. What are your hopes for a green recovery at the global level? Well, I think that those are, to the degree that we do those things, I mean, this is the last great opportunity we're going to get, I think. The world's going to have to spend a ton of money to pull itself out of this economic hole. And that money might as well be spent in ways that would also prevent the worst of the next crisis, the bigger crisis that's coming at us. And countries that have realized that are making, beginning to make smart steps. You can see it at the national level in budgets, as you described. You can even see it at the city level where cities are saying, you know what, we're going to put a lot of bike lanes out there because we want our city to be different coming out of this. Uh, maybe we'll see it in the U.S. after November. The one thing to remember about climate change, though, is that it's a timed test. If we don't solve it soon, we will never solve it, because we will pass a number of irreversible tipping points, and those deadlines are quickly approaching. We're obviously not going to prevent climate change. Too late for that. It's off the menu. The question now is whether we can stop it short of the point where it cuts civilizations off at their knees. And that really is, as you say, a timed test. That's the thing that makes it hard. We really have, I think, about 10 years of real leverage left. The IPCC, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, said in October of 2018 that if by 2030 we hadn't fundamentally transformed our energy system, by which they meant cutting emissions in half, the chances of meeting the Paris climate targets were nil. And the Paris climate targets aren't that great. I mean, we're already seeing, even short of those targets, the temperature increases we've seen so far are already wreaking havoc around the planet. So I, look, we're not going to escape undamaged and untraumatized. The question at this point is how bad it's going to be. And the answer to that is mostly about how fast we work. I, I will say, in the last 10 years, the engineers have done a spectacularly good job of bringing down the cost of sun and wind. It's now the cheapest form of power on Earth. And that means that if we wanted to move fast, we could. Bill, I want to conclude this episode by reflecting on the 30 years you have spent fighting the fossil fuel industry, the bankers who fund it, the politicians who enable it. What lessons do you think the environmental movement's future leaders should take to heart? Oh, I don't know if they need any advice from me. The young people who are coming up in this work are doing an amazing job. You know, it took us too long to realize that it wasn't 
an argument about data and reason. It was a fight about money and power. <laughs> and that's what we've been engaged in this last decade or so. And it's starting to bear fruit, but we're going to have to keep it up. The fossil fuel industry is enormously powerful and cornered and desperate. They're probably in certain ways even more dangerous. Bill, thanks so much. Well, my pleasure. Thank you very much for good questions. That was Bill McKibben, an environmental sciences scholar at Middlebury College and a co-founder of 350.org. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bayrosley. Opinion Has It is produced and edited by Kasha Brasalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Whitney Arana, Jonathan Stein, and Stuart Watley. Mm-hmm.